morning. Christ is risen. It's good to be back at Sanctuary. As Jonathan's already said, it is a special weekend for, for me as I see my friend and this community that I've come to love start to connect and intertwine, their lives intertwined. I, I'm in the unique position of knowing all of the good things that you have in store and also knowing enough about you and this community to know some of the good that's ahead of him. And so I'm excited for all of you, for him as his friend and for all of you as your friend. I'm excited about what God is doing. thankful that God is doing this for his sake and for your sake. So I encourage you to be in prayer for Jonathan. Approach him. He's, he's much more approachable than I am. I'm much more like Ed. You know, we are unapproachable, difficult people. Jonathan is much more like Brent and Janice. He's lovable, <laughs> likable, kind, generous. Um, I'm a theologian who moonlights as a preacher. Jonathan is a preacher, right? So there are all these things that are, that are great. Uh, you, why you're not laughing more is deeply disturbing me right in this moment. Uh, it, it, is, it really is a joy, Jonathan. So thank you for for the way you're giving to this community already, and thank you, Sanctuary, for the ways in which you're opening up your lives for Jonathan. So, last time I was here, I left and went home and got a tattoo, which was on a Friday. On Sunday, as I usually do if I can at all, I watched the live stream of the service, and Pastor Ed was speaking <laughs> about how angry he became about a member of his congregation getting a tattoo and how this like challenged his walk with the Lord and so on. So this, uh, this may be my last Sunday if Ed still holds those kinds of grudge, but my hope is that Jonathan and Cody and Paul and I are actually going to convince Ed and Gail and Brandon Janice to get tattoos. So what we need you to do is send in some design ideas to Paul and Cody and we're going to move toward like a, a pastoral team tattoo we're all going to have. Maybe on the neck, somewhere prominent. That's the goal. When my grandmother, my grandmother was told about it, my grandmother's Pentecostal church lady, you know, with the beehive hairdo, my wife told her that I was going to get a tattoo. She said, you better pray about it, Nan, that's what we call her, you better pray about it. And Nan said, there's nothing to pray about, you either do it or you don't do it. And I guess the do is for him and the don't is for me, so... That was, that was her wisdom. <laughs> so here we are. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm, we're going to read a, a bulk of this chapter, and I'm interested really in one phrase, but everything in this chapter depends upon the, the meaning of this one phrase. So let's, let's read it in context. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think for Paul, perhaps the most surprising use we've made of his scriptures, of what he's written, is that we tend to read what he's written as if it were written to us individually. All of his letters, though, of course, even those that are addressing individuals, Timothy and Titus and Philemon, are written to communities. And Paul considered his work to be primarily about community building, trying to make certain kinds of communities with certain kinds of witness in the world. He addressed individuals within that work, not the other way around. And we've all, most of us at least, have been taught to read the text from the individual to the community. That first you address the individual, order the individual's Christian life, and then a bunch of individual Christians, as they're living maturely, form a mature community. Paul's logic works the other way. 
And he starts by saying, my prayer is that all of y'all, he didn't have Oklahoma diction, it would have helped him if he had said this, my prayer is that all of y'all will live a, a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There's one calling, there's one calling, we all share it, and we have to live a life together that's worthy of that calling. Not meaning that we earn our salvation or earn our standing before God, but that our life together is fitted to, it's appropriate to, the calling we've been given, that our life reflects the glory that has claimed us. And he says this, this kind of life is only livable if you have certain marks in your character, if you're humble and gentle and patient, if you bear with one another in love, if you are long-suffering. Because Paul is in no way naive. He understands that to live with other people is to suffer. It is to suffer. And to live with them for a long time is to suffer long. And so you, you have to find a way to live gently and most of all, to forgive, because you will be wronged, and you will need forgiveness. You'll probably need forgiveness more often than you or have the right to expect it, but I'm not going to meddle. That's for Pastor Brent and Pastor Janice to do. <laughs> and so then he roots this call in an understanding of the oneness we share with God. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And then he comes to speak to us individually. But to each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. And then Paul comments on this psalm he's quoted. When it says he ascended, talking obviously about Christ, what does it mean that, but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. In other words, Christ claims in his life the full dimension of creatureliness. There is no height that he has not reached. There is no depth that he has not reached. No height of joy that he's not claimed. No depth of suffering that he has not claimed. It all belongs to him so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ so that what's true of Jesus becomes true of his community. So that everything that is true of Christ is true of us, communally and personally. To reach that maturity, Paul says, we must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, and here's the phrase I'm interested in for today, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. So here's the vision Paul has. There is one calling that rests upon all the people of God. And each Christian community is called to find a way to live a shared life that's fitted to that one calling. And the fulfillment of that calling is that the fullness of God will rest in that community and radiate out from that community to the world around. That we are the temple of the Spirit. And the purpose of the temple is not the temple itself. The temple is important only for those the Spirit wants to be accessed by. 
To say we are the temple of the Spirit is to say that God has called us into collaboration with his work for others. We are the temple of the Spirit so that others might have a way to come into the presence of the God who loves them and claims them as his own. And we have to find a way to live together in community to do that. And Paul puts all of the weight for living that kind of life on speaking the truth in love. That if we're going to grow up into Christ as a community, if sanctuary is going to be the kind of community that can bear the fullness of God for the sake of the world, then we have to be Christians who know how to speak the truth to one another in love. But what does that mean? What does that mean? I tell my students at the seminary all the time, you only begin to learn once you become suspicious of yourself and your own understanding at the time. To, to assume you don't know what you mean when you're saying it. And then to ask, what do I mean when I say? And that holds true in this case as well. We can't assume we know what we mean when we say we're called to speak the truth in love. Because if we do assume it, we work from common sense. There are, there are a couple of common sense readings of this phrase that I think are, are available to all of us. And we all have probably held one or another of these at a different time, at one or another time. The first the common sense way of hearing it is to put all the weight down on the in love. So we, we are called to speak the truth, but make sure that we do it lovingly. That what really matters is not that we speak the truth, although that's important, but that we speak the truth in a way that's loving. And so many of you will, will find that, that's, that what you're, that's what you're drawn to. And when you hear people speaking the truth unlovingly, something rises up in you and rebels against that and insists, no, we have to speak the truth in love. And others of you will hold to another common sense reading, which puts all the weight down on the speaking the truth. Yes, it would be nice if we could be loving, but sometimes you just have to tell it like it is. You just have to say the pure, unadulterated truth to give people the hard truth of the matter. Right? And sometimes we, we hold those contradictions in ourselves. We hold to both common sense views. And depending on whether we're talking about this or about that, we appeal to one or another of those understandings, that we, we have to temper the truth with love, or we just give the full truth in all of its ugliness and difficulty. But I think both are wrong. That common sense betrays us there. That Paul is not talking about either way of handling truth and love. It's not about being polite and kind. And it's not about saying what you think, no matter what the consequences are. It's something else altogether. And when Paul says to speak the truth in love, there is a theological depth at play that subverts our common sense. In fact, I would encourage you to think of discipleship and sanctification like this. It's God saving you from common sense. What God does in your life over the course of obedience and submission and living by faith is God strips you of common sense and fills you with the mind of Christ. So that what seems perfectly obvious to you at one point, as you deepen your life in God, you come to realize, I only thought that because I was unlike God. My character was not yet marked with the character of Christ. And so if we're going to speak the truth in love as Paul meant it, we have to crucify our common sense about what it means. It's not about being polite. It's important to be polite. I would love for you to be polite. That's not what Paul's calling for. And it's not about speaking the truth no matter the consequences. Because both of those ways of thinking about this phrase assume we know what we mean by truth and what we mean by love. And most of us, when we say truth, what we mean is that there's some congruency between the words I use and what I'm actually thinking and feeling. So truth is about matching up my words with what's going on inside of me. And love is about doing that with kindness, with generosity, with gentleness, in such a way that the person to whom we're speaking is not 
too damaged by what we're saying. That there's a kind of niceness to what we're talking about. But that isn't what Paul's calling for. He's not saying, make sure you say, find the best words to say, what's going on inside of you, and do that in a way that doesn't cause too much damage. He's saying something much more beautiful, much more glorious than that. So what does he mean by love and what does he mean by truth? Let's begin with love. When Paul says love, he means the life of God. God is love. In this same letter, he begins the letter by telling the Ephesians, you have been chosen in the beloved to be known by God and to know God. So when Paul says speak the truth in love, he does not mean to speak the truth in a kind way. He means speak the truth as it is in the life of God. Speak it with God's character. Speak it with God's wisdom. Speak it with God's liveliness. Whatever it means for God to be God, you must speak the truth within that dynamic. Speak the truth as God speaks it to God. So that in the inner Trinitarian life where the Father is speaking to the Son in the Spirit, that's the love we're supposed to speak in. Whatever that means, however that can be done. God is love. Jesus is the beloved one who loves the Father and is loved by the Father in the Spirit. And that's where we're supposed to speak. That's the love that conditions how we speak. And, and, Jesus is the truth. Paul tells the Ephesians, truth is found in Christ. And Jesus himself says in John, I am the way and the truth and the life. So what's being said here by Paul is not find words for your feelings and share them in a way that's kind. It's speak the life of God within the life of God so that the community can be built up to bear the fullness of God. Speak like God speaks. Speak the truth in love and you will create space in community for God to act. You see how much more beautiful and powerful it is to think about speaking the truth in love as something God is doing with us and through us instead of me simply finding a way to express myself gently and politely. This is exactly what Paul prays for the Ephesians in the previous chapter. Ephesians 3, he says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So notice Paul's prayer. He's bowing to the Father, and his prayer to the Father is that the Father will send the Spirit to the community, and in the people of God, he will make it possible, give them power for Christ to be born in them. In the same way that the Spirit overshadows Mary so that Christ is born in her, The Spirit overshadows us so that Christ can be formed in us. And Paul prays that the Father will send the Spirit so that Christ can dwell in us. As we are being rooted and grounded in love, that is, as our life starts to take on the character of God's life, then we may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul says, my prayer is that Christ will be formed in you and that as you're living a life of love and faith, that you will come to know Christ as the one who loves God and is loved by God. And in coming to know Christ, a knowledge that passes knowledge, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the prayer, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Not so you can enjoy the fullness of God, but so that through you God can do exceeding abundantly above all you can ask or think for the people who are living around you. 
That God wants to fill you with all the fullness of God because he loves your neighbors. He loves those who are strange to you. He loves your enemies. And so he wants to form Christ in you so that as you come to know the love of Christ, you can be opened up infinitely to the love of God, the love that is God, and the truth that is God, and everyone around you can see the fullness of God. That's the gospel. The gospel is not that Jesus died for your sins so you can't go to hell. The gospel is that the triune God has included you in his life so that you can know joy as God knows it, you can know peace as God knows it, you can know love and life as God knows it, and through you all the world can see the glory of God. And the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's our calling. That's our calling, not just to tell people about how they can avoid hell, but how the fullness of life is open to them. But that depends upon the way that we speak to one another. That depends upon the way that we come to one another. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13 that it's possible to understand all mysteries, have all knowledge, have all faith, the faith that moves mountains. It's possible to give away all of our possessions, to hand our bodies over to be burned, and to be nothing. If you have not love, all of this is meaningless. Because it's not about me expressing my truth. That's not what builds community. That's not what makes us into the people of God. That's not what opens us up to the love of God and to the world. What opens us up is the truth that is God. And the work of the Spirit in my life is for me to discern the difference between my truth and the truth. Speaking what's in me versus speaking what is in him, what is his life, and holding those together. Now let me be clear. There is a time to speak the truth by bringing to voice what's inside of me. Bonhoeffer has what I think are the truest words about speaking the truth I've ever read. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, telling the truth is not primarily about personal integrity. It depends instead upon knowing the realities in which you are speaking, being attuned to what's happening around you. Now, what does he mean? He doesn't mean you should lie. He just means that there's a kind of truth-telling that matters more than personal honesty. Now, there's places, some conversations, some relationships, where you have to be honest. You have to say what you're thinking. This is what's going on inside of me right now. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. And the intimacy and the integrity of that relationship depends upon the trust to speak that openly and that vulnerability with one another. But honesty by itself never makes God's life possible. By itself... You speaking your truth doesn't create God's possibilities for someone. And one of the things we have to learn about living in Christian community is that sometimes the greatest gift we can give to one another is not to say what we're thinking. Now, don't hear me. Not to be dishonest, but to make sure that we subject our honesty to the truthfulness of God. I can have an honest opinion about something and submit it to the truthfulness of God, which means I can be silent. That may be the greatest gift I will ever give to any of you is what I don't say. Some of you are thinking you would wish I'd give that gift right now. But Bonhoeffer's pointing to, I think, an absolutely crucial truth. There is a difference between my truth and the truth. I can speak to you in a way that shows you what's going on inside of me, and almost certainly, almost certainly, that will bind you to me in some way, or repel you from me. But if I find a way to speak to you the truth in love, then God can happen to you. 
then your life is opened up to what the Spirit wants to do in you, and it's not about you being connected to me and dependent upon me or driven away from me. You're connected to him. You're connected to the head. You're connected to the one in whom all of us are made one. So what I have to do to live in Christian community is to know when to speak honestly and when to speak truthfully and when to subject my opinion to what, the, what God is doing. Opinions are, I think, a lot like instincts or even, even something more basic than instincts. If you've ever been around a dog or any kind of animal that has been abused, it has kind of knee-jerk, intuitive response to presence. Every time you stretch your hand out to pet it, it recoils because it's been imprinted with experience over and over and over again. And all of our opinions about one another work like that. We have opinions about one another that are shaped by our experiences with one another and with other people who remind us of one another. And we come into the moment and we have these kind of knee-jerk responses, these intuitive responses that tell us what we seem to think. But the work of transformation, the work the Spirit does in our life is to get us so that we cannot just be responsive to our own opinions, but learn the truth about God and allow our instincts to shift. That over time, my instincts about you can change. If I'm patient enough, if I know when to bite my tongue, over time I can start to see you as you are seen, know you as you are known. I can start to recognize you for who God says you are. This is what happens to Paul himself. Remember, Paul is persecuting the Christians. And then he converts, and everyone's like, we've been hit by this man before. We're not about to let him into our circles. And what Barnabas does is he begins to speak the truth in love over Paul and over that community and made it possible for Paul and that community to find one another in Christ. That Paul is not who you've known him to be, and these Christians are not who Paul has known them to be. They are who they are in God and in Christ. And Barnabas found a way to speak that until unity became possible. And all of us are called to that. Paul says every member of the body has to speak in this way. We have to learn how to crucify our opinions for the sake of the truth. To let God's truth win in the way we understand one another, in the way we understand our own lives. I'm almost done. Just a few few more words. We can only speak the truth for others, never for ourselves. One of the ways you can test whether or not you're being honest or truthful is what do you want from it? I remember when I was in college, I had a, I had a professor. I hope he never hears this. Or maybe he should, I don't know. I had a professor who, for whatever reason, I strongly disliked him. It wasn't based on anything. Something about him just annoyed me. And I just had an opinion. I didn't like him. I didn't think he was a very nice man. And then we had a, a, it was a Bible college, and so we had a a special service, and whoever the guest speaker was talked about grudges and bitterness, and so I thought, man, this is me, you know. And so I went to the man, I went to the professor, and I said, professor, I just want you to know I've really not liked you for a while. (laughs) Right, right. And I remember the look on his face, and I walked away feeling so good, like I have obeyed the Lord. I mean, my heart was clean. I mean, I had been honest with this man. And then like a month later, I was like, wait a minute. I sinned against him more in confessing than I had ever done to that moment. I mean, yes, I was wrong to think the way I thought about him. And yes, I should have repented of it. By telling him that I disliked him. Hey, in all those times I'm in class and you thought I was just another student having a fine time, I actually was resenting you. 
Now, I, I mean, I've imprinted on him an anxiety, a fear, that was far more damaging than anything that I had allowed myself to feel up to that moment. But how many times in church do we try to speak the truth because we feel a need to speak it? We think something needs to be said, and we've got to say it like it is. I mean, this is the wisdom that comes to bear in 1 Corinthians 14 when Paul's talking to this community of people. I mean, they're charismatics. I mean, we say we are, but they really were. Paul says every time they get together, everybody has a prophecy. Can you imagine? Now, that's a charismatic church. Everybody has a prophecy. And everybody has a song. Please, God, keep me from, away from that community. Right? Everybody has a word. Everybody has a song. And then Paul says, this isn't how it works. This, this, this isn't going to, you can't continue this. So here's the rule. At most, three of you can do this. Three of you. And if Colton goes first, of course it would be Colton, if he stands up and prophesies, and then Paul decides he's got to prophesy, the only right thing to do is for Colton to sit down and shut up. Well, right. Right. Not only in this example, but in all other examples possible. Right. But think about, think about what Paul is saying. He doesn't question who's moved by the Spirit and who isn't. He doesn't say, discern which one of them is truly, genuinely moved by God. He just says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's hearing from God and who isn't. The question is, what do you do about it? The question is not, who's in touch with God and who isn't. The question is, what are you going to do with what you're hearing God says? If you hear it rightly, then you will speak it rightly. And the most Christ-like thing in that moment, Paul says, is for Colton to crucify his right to express himself and sit down. This is at the heart of what it means to be in Christian community. That even when God is showing you something, if there's no way for you to express it in a way that forms us into the image of Christ, you wait. You yield to others who may be even more immature than you are, even less aware of what God is doing than you are, because you understand that the most important thing is that our life express the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for the sake of his enemies. That self-expression, even when we are hearing God rightly, isn't what makes Christian worship Christian. It's loving our neighbor enough to let them wrong us and wrong others if necessary to keep from confusing people about the character of this God we worship. This is what's called for. We can only speak truth to the people we are willing to speak it with. If we're not willing to worship with, worship alongside, have our lives knit together with people, we can never speak the truth to them rightly. In fact, speaking truth with them always comes ahead of speaking truth to them. It's the worshiping community, speaking the truth in love together, speaking the life of Christ in the life of God together that learns how to speak the truth to one another. We can never create a kind of distance. That's what the enemy does. I mean, the enemy is our accuser because he tries to use truth against us to create distance between himself and us. But that's not how God's truth works. It only works in intimacy. It only works as he embraces us and draws us near and speaks to us in that embrace. And the same holds true for us. If we're going to speak the truth to each other, we have to be with each other. And we have to always be speaking the truth for each other and over each other. Long before we have any difficult conversations in which we have to be quote-unquote truthful with each other, we need to have years of life spent worshiping together and interceding for one another in prayer to create the atmosphere in which difficult conversations become possible lovingly within God's life. Not me expressing my own, but finding words to express God's love for you that creates a future. Let me end with this. 
I think maybe the, the greatest example of this in Jesus' own story is his interaction with Peter on the night Peter betrays him. Because where all of this comes to bear, everything I've said this morning, where it really comes to bear is in the moment when you personally feel threatened or wronged. When somebody else in the community, whether it's one of the pastors or it's someone in your small group or someone that you sit with or someone you've known for years, but when someone in the community is about to wrong you and you can sense it or has wronged you, that's when everything I'm saying this morning matters. Up till then, it's easy to speak the truth in love. But once your life is threatened in some way, once you are wronged in some way, then speaking the truth in love becomes an entirely different reality. And so here we are, it's the night of Jesus' betrayal. He's just shared this meal with them, the one we're about to share together. And he tells them, you have been with me through my trials, which is, of course, heartbreaking because we know they're about to abandon him. They're about to leave him. Once they leave this room, they're not going with him. They're going to fall asleep in Gethsemane. They're going to run away and hide when he's arrested. They're going to be nowhere to be seen when he's hanging on the cross. They're going to be hiding in a room when he's buried. But up to this moment, they follow him. He says, you've followed me in my trials. You've been with me in my trials. So I give you this kingdom that has been given to me. And then in the presence of all of them, he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, listen to me. Satan has desired to have you to sift you like wheat, and you are going to deny me three times. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you are converted, strengthen your brothers. Now think about this moment. Jesus knows he's about to be personally betrayed by Peter. Not only betrayed, but denied that over and over and over again, Peter is going to say, I do not know him, I do not know him, and I do not know him. But Jesus does not speak from his heart, from the pain in him, from his betrayal from a friend. He speaks to Peter's future. Yes, you're going to betray me, but I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. Now think about how astonishing this is. We tend to think of Peter's denial as nothing but the failure of his faith. But Jesus says there's something deeper than your denials. Even when you're denying me, even when you say you want no part of me, I continue to intercede for you, and I continue to care about the place that your spirit touches the spirit of God. Because there's something that's going to sustain you through your disobedience, and that's what I'm interested in speaking to. I'm not interested in speaking to our past together. I'm not interested in speaking to hurt you're about to do to me. I know it's coming. You're going to betray me. But I'm interested in the ways in which your faith is going to sustain you through this brokenness, sustain you through this rebellion. And when you come out the other side, know that I trust you with the same calling I trusted you with in the beginning. Peter, I said I was going to build my church on you. And your denials don't change a thing about that. Your faith is going to sustain you through all of this denial, and out the other side, I still say to you, I'm going to build my church on you. That's how we have to speak to each other. That even in moments in which we are personally threatened, when others are wronging us, we have to find a way, without being naive, without denying the facts, to see past what's happening to us, past our honest opinion, to the truth in God about their future. And we have to speak to that in a way that creates in them the hope of a new possibility. Somehow to speak so that they recognize in spite of their shame, in spite of their failure, there is still a truth that's deeper than what they've experienced. Stand with me, if you will. I'm going to tell you a personal story to kind of seal this. Don't ask me right now, but some other time ask me to tell you about my week. This was 
You know the Darwin Awards for the stupidest criminals and so on? I would get an award for the worst dad of the week. I have had a rough week. Not purposely, but man. My daughter put together a, she sewed together an outfit for her doll, like made it by hand, sent me a picture of it, and I thought she was just sending me a picture of the doll, and I said, creepy. (laughs) So days of work, right? That's just one example. It's been a week like that. You see why I'm talking about speaking the truth in love? I need all of you to speak the truth in love to me. But no, this, this, this is what happened with my, with my middle son, Clive, a few months ago. I, I can be kind of intense, especially if I'm working on something. And I was in the middle of writing a paper. It had a deadline. And I'm, I remembered a book I needed that was on the, beside the bed, on the, on the bedstead. And so I ran over to, the, to my bedroom, and I went in to get the book. And as I go to get the book, my son, Clive, is on the bed playing with the iPad. And he said something to me, but I don't know what he said. I rushed to get the book, and he, and he said it again. And again, it didn't register. I just knew he was saying the same thing again. And he said it a third time, and I snapped at him, said something about being busy or whatever the case might be. But I, I shut it down. And when I did, I saw the look on his face, the hurt, and it stopped me. And then my seven-year-old son said this to me with tears welling up in his eyes. He said, Dad, I know you didn't mean that. A lot of people would think that that was rude and hateful. Seven-year-old. That that was rude and hateful, but I've lived with you for a long time. And I know you. And you would never say that to me out of meanness. That's speaking the truth in love. Because the truth is, I was mean to him. Right? Just the flat truth of the matter is, I was short. I was hateful. But he understood that his relationship to me was deeper than what was happening in that moment. He's my son. I'm his dad. And way past any moment in which I'm short with him. I love him. And even in his hurt, what came up out of him was knowing that he is loved. And when he spoke to me like that, he not only broke my heart and made me recognize the wrong I had done for him, but he created the possibility for me to never enter that space the same way again. Let's learn to speak to each other that way. That even when we're wronged, what comes up out of us is, I know you. I've lived with you a long time. I understand what God wants for you. You know the story of Moses and the rock? God tells him to speak to the rock and water will come out, and Moses is done with it. I mean, Moses is patient for like 39 and a half years, and those last six months, he's done. Right? He reaches his breaking point, which is tragic, but he's like, no, I'm done. And he strikes the rock with his staff, and water still comes out. Because when you have the character of God, Whether people speak to you or strike you, what comes out of you is the life of the Spirit. What comes out of you is the life that gives them life. We need to be those kinds of people who recognize that with all the ways in which we're going to hurt each other, large ways and small ways, purposeful ways and unintentional ways, if we want to become the people of God God calls us to be, that in Tulsa we become a community that radiates the glory of God to this community and to the world, then we've got to speak to each other 
with the love that God is and the truth that God is. And he calls us to that. Amen? Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.